It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. To be honest, uh, I feel safer almost being back home, uh, despite the air raids and despite the fact that the whole of Ukraine remains a war zone. It's home. And in Ukraine, we have the saying that even your own walls have a healing power. The Ukrainian MP, Lesia Vasilenko, is sat opposite me in a studio at the Times offices in London. She's travelled for over 24 hours to get here from Kyiv, but her thoughts are clearly still there, in the city she calls home. It feels completely different being there. It feels empowering. It feels right. I enjoy every second I spend in Kyiv. It's an amazing city which just shows resilience. Both the city and the Ukrainian people have had to show extraordinary resilience over the past year, as their lives have been hijacked by war. The worst thing is that you start getting used to, to the war sounds. So when the air raid sirens goes off, you no longer feel any alarm or anxiety. No human being ever should be getting used to living in war. Lesia refuses to let her children grow up, expecting their home to be a war zone. She's travelled around the world, making sure that governments don't forget the plight of the Ukrainian people. Joining us now from Kyiv is Lesia Vasilenko. Lesia Vasilenko, thank you so much indeed for your time. Lesia, thank you for joining us and uh, speaking to India ahead. Lesia Vasilenko, first of all, thank you so much uh, for being with us. My skills uh, are not uh, military skills, but I think I have quite okay communication skills. <laughs> My friends joke even now that in those first couple of weeks, you were just a radio transmission point. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, cometh the hour, cometh the woman. 
On International Women's Day, we hear from Lesia Vasilenko. For Lesia, the Russian invasion didn't begin last February. Her personal battle against the Putin regime's interference in Ukraine began nine years ago, when the Ukrainian government turned its back on Europe to build closer relations with Russia. A huge proportion of the Ukrainian public was furious, and it unleashed a wave of protests against Russia, which became known as the Euromaidan. I was uh, walking in the park where students started gathering before they went to the Maidan. It's the park opposite the Shevchenko University. And I was walking there with my two-week-old firstborn baby boy. Wow, so you've just given birth I've just two given weeks birth. before. Yes. I remember it very clearly in the social media. There was information that the students would be protesting this absolutely awful decision to not sign the EU accession agreement. And these students were going on to the Maidan. And for some time, I, I actually followed them with the pram. And since then, uh, I was uh, a very uh, active participant, taking night shifts because I live in downtown Kiev. And I remember that schedule very, very clearly. So I, I would breastfeed at 9 p.m. I would go do a shift until 12 a.m. At my dawn, come back, breastfeed again, and go until 3 a.m. and then come back breastfeed and go to bed. <laughs> I think anybody listening who's had uh, a, a baby will know how insane that sounds. Yes, but I sort of felt a duty to go out to support these protests and to be part of them. So you were very much doing the hard graft. You were there for the night shifts, keeping the protests going fighting for Ukraine's right to be closer to Europe rather than Russia. While you were on maternity leave, you also set up an NGO, again, to sort of help with this battle. Tell us a bit about that. When Russia annexed Crimea in February 2014 and later on went to occupy the Nyetsk and Luhansk region also through the spring of 2014, that's when the war really broke out. We had many, many military casualties coming in in insane numbers to the military hospitals. And th there was needs for everything, blankets, bed sheets, medical supplies, clothing. One of my friends was actually running a charity project and I tried to help when I, whenever I could. And I did a sort of fundraiser around the people who I knew. And I was coming into hospital to give what I collected. And she took me by the hand and said, look, the money is good, but these guys need someone to talk to. Come talk to someone. And I just followed her. And the person I talked to, his name was Yuri. He was 24 years old. He lost his leg in combat. And 
His father was also with him in the same military unit, and he was completely intact. And uh, you can imagine the devastation of the family as they were trying to to find enough money for prosthetics and for yeah. operations. So the that father were is still fighting. He is feeling a huge amount of guilt that it wasn't him, that it was his son. The mother was in complete devastation, not knowing where yeah. to get this amount. It was a huge amount for them. I started thinking, okay, we can do fundraisers, of course, but surely the state must be compensating. I'm a lawyer by training, so I went home, I opened up the legislation, and it was there in black and white that, yes, if, it, if we're talking about combat wounds, then there is a certain amount of compensation the soldier is entitled to. That's how the Legal 100 NGO started. So you're using your legal training to set up an NGO to help the soldiers who've lost limbs to try to make sure that the state is compensating them. How do you go from that to becoming an MP? Well, for five years, I was developing this NGO and I started uh, working with the Parliamentary Committee on Veterans Affairs. Basically, we successfully managed to set up a Ministry of Veterans Affairs in Ukraine. I was so deeply involved in government processes that the next logical step was to be at the decision-making all the time. President Putin has launched a big military offensive against Ukraine. Russian troops and armor have crossed borders from the north, the east and the south. There have been missile strikes and explosions in a dozen cities. Take us back now to a year ago. Russia is invading Kiev. It's going after the capital. It thinks it's going to take over the whole country. Tell us, where were you when you realized what was happening and what was your response? At 5 a.m. I woke up because of phone calls to my husband's phone, to my own phone, to be told that, okay, it has started. I, I opened up all the WhatsApp chats and it was that. 3.40 a.m. Russia has started the bombing. The war has started. At 7 a.m. I was already in Parliament voting for martial law together with all my other colleagues. When you wake up and you see your WhatsApp full of messages saying your country, your home is about to be invaded, what's your reaction? My reaction was I knew that I, I had a duty. I knew that we had to get to Parliament somehow. We needed to get the martial law passed, so I needed to be there. So immediately I started putting together a, an overnight backpack because we didn't know whether we would be voting in a building in Kiev or whether we would be taking to a secret location, which, by the way, still remains secret. Don't tell us. We, well, we haven't, we haven't used it, so I don't even know where, where that is. Because the parliament of Ukraine throughout this year, despite all the attacks and regardless of what was going on in Kyiv or the front line, we sit there and we vote and we deliberate laws and institutions are not dead in Ukraine and uh, democracy is still very much alive and working and functioning. But anyway, I was there gathering this overnight backpack, automatically putting on my makeup and also giving instructions 
to my husband, uh, who's a completely different story. He was sure that it will blow over. Okay, it started, so it started. What do you want from me? His reaction was, go back to bed. You're not going to gather at 7 a.m. in the morning anyway. It's too early. And I was, who do I need to call? My mom, my mother-in-law, all the relatives, all the close friends who do not necessarily read the news. I need to manage my kids because two of my kids are at my mother-in-law's on half term. My youngest, uh, who wasn't one yet at the time, she's in the next room in her court. So uh, I have this completely irresponsible father and husband who's telling me go back to bed because it's not... <laughs> time to vote yet <laughs> uh, because he's just uh, sleeping and I'm trying also to put on my makeup and make sure that it's, it lasts really well because I don't know how long I'll be away for whether I'm going in for a couple of hours or whether I'm going to a completely different region a different city and God, God yeah. knows what's going to happen uh, so it was a very hectic morning You describe sort of, you know, packing the bag, going into almost autopilot as, as an MP, thinking, how do we keep government going? What do we do next? Get into Parliament. And then that, that picture of your family at home and knowing that bombs might start landing soon, that, that must be incredibly hard, you know, thinking about the baby. It was, especially when your partner is a very easygoing person who sort of takes what life hands of them and I'm all along I'm asking him take Sophia that's our daughter's name take Sophia to to a shelter uh, go across the road to, to a bomb our shelter. neighbor's house to there's a basement there use it as a bomb shelter and as I'm walking out of the house that very neighbor comes in and I'm saying oh it's so great that you're here you're going to go all together to the shelter and these two men look at me no, we're going to take a stroll in the park and get some coffee. And <sighs> at that point, I had to go. So I just stormed out, nearly hysterical, leaving these two men and the baby in the middle of war, about to go and grab some coffee and go to the park. <laughs> <laughs> not on a wartime fitting yet. <laughs> definitely, definitely not very fitting for wartime. I remember we came to the governmental district, not exactly knowing where to go. And all of a sudden, me and my other colleague, we're standing in this half-empty government quarter, two women alone in, in the street next to the presidential administration. And it's funny because at a later date, I read that around that time and in the morning of the 24th, there were at least three attempts at assassination of the president of Ukraine. And we're standing there, God knows how many minutes, I don't know, 15, 20, just um, thinking, okay, what should we do? Where should we go? That was actually um, a story I broke in the Times about the assassination attempts. And I'd sort of heard from Wagner people that they were all around that area. They had sight on the presidential palace. They were tracking by phone lots of key politicians um, all the way through that period. So the risks oh, were... <laughs> you don't realize we I, I think that what kept us going and what keeps us going is that a lot of the risks we didn't know we had no security briefings, 
Nobody told us that this is something that can happen to you and this is what to do. Actually, one of the messages that went out from one of the heads of political groups, he said, your task now is do not get caught and stay alive. <laughs> That's it. It's a pretty tough task, <laughs> given what's going on around you. No, nobody knew what was actually going on. Months later, I realized how, well, how absolutely stupid some of our movements were. <laughs> and when you realized the risks that you were now facing, at that moment, a lot of women in Ukraine took their children. They didn't necessarily want to leave, but for the sake of their children, getting them to safety, they, they left the country. Were you tempted to do that? On that first day, on 24th of February, we were told, you don't go to your apartments because you're all on Russia's lists. There are kill lists, there are torture lists, there are take to Moscow lists. We don't know who's on which. You'll find out, but you better not. Wow. So I knew I couldn't go back home with them. The Russians were advancing in both directions, both towards Kiev and outside. So at the point when they were just 30 kilometers from this small town where we were staying at my in-law's house, and there were fighter jets flying over the roof of this very small, very quiet town, yeah. I decided that that's it. I'm taking my own out because it's too dangerous, because under occupation, none of our family would survive. I organized for my children to be evacuated on the 1st of March. It was snowing, it was cold. There were just women, children. There were coaches coming in, just filled with children and maybe one or two carers for the children, not even with their parents. People were crossing on foot in cars. The cars were filled up with many, many people. My own family stayed nine hours on the border. My own uh, three and both sets of grandparents. I didn't exactly know where they were going. And when you send your children off, do you have to say goodbye as if it might be the last time? Yes. What was that like? Extremely difficult because until then, I haven't shed a single tear. So when you decide you're staying, your, your children have gone, but you're staying in Ukraine. I couldn't leave neither morally nor from a legal perspective. Because of your job as a... As, as a member of parliament, we weren't eligible. Do you have to train yourself to be in a war zone? Do you have to take up arms? Do you have to prepare for what might come? Yes, so we voted at 7 a.m. for the martial law. We were told not to go back home. We were told about the kill list. We were told don't get caught, stay alive. And then finally, go to Volodymyrska Street, where our main police station is located, and you'll be given something. So we arrived there. There's a queue of uh, uh, Ukrainian members of parliament, and we all walk out with uh, an AK-47 and the PM. really manicured long nails and uh, I think the guy who was issuing me the gun looked at that and I was like whoa okay those will have to go <laughs> those will have to go <laughs> and with learning to to use the gun 
would you ever use it? Would you ever shoot somebody? If I have to protect myself or my children, yes, I will use it. Coming up, Lesia tells me about the lives of women in a war zone. That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm Christina Lamb. I'm Chief Foreign Correspondent of the Sunday Times, and I mostly cover conflict around the world. I particularly focus on what happens to women in war. And the reason that we can do this kind of reporting is thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. So please subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. One of your big roles has been going around the world persuading other countries to, to do more to help Ukraine. One of your frustrations is how difficult that process is sometimes. Are you getting enough arms from the West now? We've had all these promises of tanks. Are you getting sufficient help and is it arriving in time? If we are to be looking at long-term peace, we need to win this fight against Russia's aggression by the end of spring this year, at the latest summer this year. Coming into another winter is going to be much, much tougher. It was the supplies, it was the support, it was the media coverage. All of these things, they do play a role in making sure there's victory for Ukraine. And we definitely don't want to see them deteriorating. There's been a lot of pledges made with regard to weapons. I'd like to see these pledges come together sooner, double, triple the speed, possibly with a full-on mobilization of the military sectors of all the countries who are now helping Ukraine to really push the Russians out of the whole of the territory of Ukraine. It will not do peace any good if only part of Ukraine is deoccupied and if we're made to negotiate again about Crimea, for example. It's going to save the everyone time and give a bit of a breather, but it's also going to give Russia and Putin a bit of a breather to regroup and re regain influences, to make new deals, to amass weapons and then to strike again. It all started with Crimea. This war will have to end with Crimea as well. Uh, the game of appeasing the dictator never works. It hasn't worked in 1939. It's not going to work in uh, 2022 because it also hasn't worked in 2014 with the so-called Minsk agreements, uh, a kind of form of a peace where essentially Ukrainian territories are written off. It didn't work because Russia still decided to go in for a bigger piece of the cake. Nobody really predicts this war ending by this spring, though. Is there a danger that the longer it goes on, even with weapons coming from abroad, do you have enough manpower to keep fighting Russia? At the moment, we have enough men and women in, in military units. The essential is to have instruments to fight with the weapons on the front lines, the ammunition that goes with, the, the fuel that goes and is necessary for, for these tanks and hopefully one day fighter jets as well. 
does something critical for us. And that is something that will help save the lives and make sure that there is enough men and women in the military units fighting for Ukraine. Are you worried, though, that the longer it goes on, if you're still at war this time next year, that has a massive impact on just the number of Ukrainians who are, who are there to fight, just on the, on the population? It will have a massive impact on everything. It's what Russia counts for. Russia loves protracted conflicts. It sets these zones, which essentially are turned into frozen conflicts, and then Russia is ready to ignite them at any point suitable for Russia. And this is something that the international community needs to understand very clearly. Efforts must be mobilized to make sure that Russia's aggression is pushed back not just in Ukraine, actually, but in all of the Euro European region. Without it, we cannot count on peace returning to Europe and especially on long-term peace returning to Europe. People will have seen you on screens all over the world. They will have seen you um, putting out the message. Did you automatically know that that was your, your role? Yes. I mean, my skills are not three skills I have never had. But what I already had is the languages that I speak and the ability to put out quick and clear messages out there. My friends joke even now that in those first couple of weeks, you were just like a radio transmission point. <laughs> I would just be sitting there with a laptop here, a phone here with sort of, you know, selfie mode on. When I was doing interviews on the laptop, I was tweeting in parallel. It was just nonstop. My alarm would go off at 3 a.m. to to do US and Australia, and I'd be up at 7 to do UK, Ireland, and all the rest. Do you think there's something about the way you've gone about doing that, actually, which is sort of, you know, peculiarly sort of almost feminine? You've sent out some very powerful messages on Twitter, for example, highlighting the deaths of children, which I think grab you know, ordinary people in a way, which is slightly different to people saying this is geopolitical chaos, this is Russia ignoring the sovereignty of a nation. Real sort of human level of pointing out what happens in a war. I think that that's what uh, gets to you and touches you. That's the emotion that I was communicating. The tears were real, the fears were real, and also the determination to do everything in my power from where I stand to make sure that the number of these atrocities doesn't grow and that we put an end to it as quickly as possible. With a global outpouring of anger and shock over the brutality of Russia's war on Ukraine, mass graves and bodies in the streets of Kyiv, the suburb of Bucha, tell a story of indiscriminate murder Many world leaders are now calling it a war crime. There's been horrific tragedies across the board. But, you know, we are sort of seeing more and more women being a victim of this war. And sometimes it feels almost like they're targeted. Rape as a weapon of war, for example. Is that something that you've been particularly aware of? There are so many incidents. And uh, as this goes on, more and more are uncovered. 
for me, the the one that's linked directly to women was probably first and second April. This is when the information was coming through about what was happening during the occupation in the Kiev region in Bucha and Derpin, Borodyanka, Makariv and all the villages. And as the images also came through of naked bodies of women who were now lying dead next to a car, many, many stories of possible rape, which uh, was just completely paralyzing. My brain just refused to function and also refused to go to sleep. I just kept imagining what if, what if it was me who was there. So I think that's something that touched deeply uh, the bombings of the maternity wards in Mariupol. Yeah. Just the injustice of it, and why would you target the most vulnerable of the vulnerable uh, women, mothers who are about to give new life? Ukraine calls this strike, which hit a maternity hospital in Mariupol, a war crime. It buried patients underneath the rubble. If you went on Ukrainian Facebook on the 24th of February, it was just one total uh, PTSD uh, kind of yeah. psychological um, therapy session uh, on a national level, I guess. There are also many stories about what they had to endure and uh, the resilience that they also shown and um, how despite all of that life still goes on and they are rebuilding their lives either in Ukraine or abroad and a lot of them are women. I mean, the resilience is amazing. When you're, you know, when you're having to cope with all of this and you're looking around for inspiration, you're looking around for, for things to, to keep you going, are there stories of some of the things that women have done that, that inspire you? There are so many. For me, it's the women at the front lines, the way that very young girls, young women, they joined the military, not because they have to, mm. but because they can and because they have this feeling that they can also do their bit and they can do it well on the front lines. And at the same time, they don't stop being women, girls. They they still take care of themselves. They still do the hair. They still have the makeup. And they do their job brilliantly as snipers, as unit commanders. That's for sure very inspiring because that also gives the nation as a whole an understanding that we are really equal, that there is a chance for gender equality in Ukraine, that women's role on the front line is recognized, they are respected there, and they are allowed to develop their skills there, and that they defend our country the same as the men do, and play as important a role as the men do on the front lines at home. I see mainly uh, women leading on the efforts to collect humanitarian aid, to collect the food, the materials for the uniforms, medical supplies. And actually, a lot of these women are the ones who I know from when I was running the Legal 100 NGO. When I talked to my colleagues in different parliaments of the world or representatives of government, I often feel quite exasperated when you're getting explained why you can't get the tanks or why you can't get the fighter jets, although it will save so many 
So uh, it does feel quite depressing a lot of the time. But then you go back home and you go to a volunteer center or a humanitarian aid center and you see your girls and you hug them and you see that everything will be okay. Everyone's in their places and doing their job and you get suddenly the strength to go on and find those words to persuade the political decision makers of this world of what Ukraine needs. You mentioned how so many women are on the front line at the moment and others, you know, because so many men are on the front line, they are basically keeping society running. Will this, you know, when this war hopefully ends, will it change gender roles in Ukraine for good? I really hope it will. And I think that it has already done massive, massive amounts of work we know that the Ukrainian society will become one of respect, respect between the sexes, respect between the genders, and where both men and women will be free to live the role they see best for themselves as an individual, as a person. I was really interested in the way you sort of described even the women on the front line are very careful about their makeup. And, you know, whenever I, I see you on TV and looking at you now, you know, you are immaculate. Why does that matter so much? You want to still be a woman. You have your little, I don't know, tricks and secrets and habits, and you maintain them. It's just the way that it is for a certain generation of women. We learn to put on makeup as early as, I don't know, 13, 14. Well, actually, you learn to put on makeup way before that. I see my girls, my daughters looking at me doing the makeup in the morning. I remember myself looking at my mom <laughs> doing exactly the same. I love to play around with the lipsticks. I used to get told off about that all the time. But I would study how she does it in the mirror. And for me, my mother was the example of womanhood, of what a woman is about. And really putting on that makeup and getting ready in the morning, that's step one. And then, of course, there are much more complicated things as well to follow, but that's step one. Put on the wall paint. uh, Yes, exactly. It's automatic. As I said, five in the morning, I'm going into the workspace. I'm going into parliament. Parliament is a public space. So what do we do? We put on the makeup, war or no war. Your brain just starts doing the movements you've been doing for decades. And I think the same goes for wherever you are. If you have the means to maintain a certain level of normality, that's your coping mechanism. You know, your description of watching your mother and learning how to be an impressive Ukrainian woman. What do you hope your daughters will make of of you when all of this is over? I already see this independence that my older daughter is able to articulate and her longing for this freedom. She's seven going on eight. And she's in a sort of competition with me already. Oh, mom, you have three children. I'll have four. No, actually, (laughs) I'll have five. And at the moment, all I can say, like, whatever, as long as you can bring them up properly, as long as you take care of them. And her notion is, oh, I'm not going to take care of them. You are. How much has the war changed their view of the world? 
I think their view of the world is still getting shaped, but it's definitely affected by the war. They really want to go back home, no matter how good the schools they're in. And the schools in the UK are excellent. And, you know, war takes, but war has also given them a chance to get a, a better education, to grasp another foreign language. But this is my perspective as a grown-up. As a child, they just want to go back home, home to where the walls have a healing power and the children feel it so much. Life goes back into them when I take them back to Kiev. The first time was in Christmas and I'll be taking them back over Easter as well. They just open up like flowers. War has shaped them. My son, he's nine and he can better articulate his thoughts and when I try to give him the reason that you can't go back home at this point in time because there's a war, he says to me, well, I was born into war. All my life there's been war in the background. And he is right. He was two weeks old, the revolution of dignity started. You had him there in a pram? I had him there in the pram, yes. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest this International Women's Day, the Ukrainian MP, Lesia Vasilenko. You can find all of our coverage of the Ukraine war at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producers today were Marilyn Rust and Priyanka Delardia. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. <laughs>